two readings this morning. The first is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. Um, by grace through faith. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then the second reading is from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, it's, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the, righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. morning everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm John Scout. I'm one of the elders here in this church and um, typically I, I don't stand up here to give a sermon. Um, I kind of equate a little bit to um, football because football has been the topic, especially this week, and you know our, our, um, our preachers, our, our typical preachers, um, Andrew, Glenn and Joel are normally up here. So they'd be like the, the core team, you know, the ones who are out there most of the time. And then if we don't get any other preachers, then then we might rely on, say, 
um, another preacher from another church or, um, say, from the college. And so they'd be the guys on the interchange bench, you know, coming off. And then, you know, if we, get, we can't get any of those, then we may have someone who, like a student, and they'd be like the, the substitute, you know. So if someone crashes out at a game, you bring that person in. And then down on the list is the emergencies, you know, those who are rarely used, and that's me today, <laughs> all right? So I'm not up here normally, but I'll give it a best shot, and I'm continuing with the hot topics that you guys have expressed uh, a desire to learn a little bit more about. And so today I'm going to give you a bit of an insight into what it means to be reformed. So what does that all that mean? Well, I actually think I need Jalen up here because like, I can't do any better than what he does, certainly. Um, I've been involved in the Reformed Church for all of my life. And um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't know a lot more than that. But I just think that out of all that time, as I've grown up and as I've become more aware, it's been an evolution and I've become really aware of what it actually means to be a Reformed person. And um, for me, that's kind of certainly driven a fair bit of desire to find out a little bit more about it. And so today, hopefully, I can give you a little bit of more insight into what it actually means. For those of you who've been like me, grew up in the Reformed Church as well, a lot of this is not going to be new. A lot of this is going to be things you've heard before in the past. But some of you, perhaps, who come back, come into the Reformed Church just recently... Hopefully, this gives you a little bit of an insight and a little bit of an appetite to find out more about it. Because I certainly can't do it justice. I can't in 20, 25 minutes or I think as Joel preached, I prayed an hour. I'm not going to be up here for an hour. <laughs> um, I can't do justice to 500 years of reformational thinking and theology. So that's going to be difficult. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a snapshot and hopefully it encourages you to find out a little bit more about it. Um, why would we do this? Why do we need to be kind of even a little bit kind of um, interested in theology? If you actually look at the term theology and what it actually means, theology comes from two, two words, theos, which means God, and um, logos, which means discussion or discourse. And I think if you're interested in God and you're th interested in talking about God, then we're all involved in theology. And to sometimes a, a little bit, like you know the people who are actually in this all the time, but we as Christians, I think it's our responsibility to actually you know, talk about what we believe and share it with others. And so in a lot of ways, we're actually all theologians. And why would you be interested in any way whatsoever in Reformed theology? Why would you be interested in knowing more about the Reformed Church? I just go to church. It happens to be a Reformed church. Why would I be interested in knowing any more about it? Kind of equate it a little bit to um, I'm involved in the soccer club and a lot of you are involved in that same club as well. And so just kind of think about if someone was to ever ask you, why do you actually play soccer? And you said, oh, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty good game, I suppose, but... My parents always played it, so I've just continued playing it. 
I mean, I've played other sports as well, but yeah, I like soccer. It's not that convincing, is it? And they say, why are you involved in a club? And you go, well, duh, that's the only way I can play games. Isn't there more to it than that? No, oh, I don't think so. Isn't it an opportunity then for you to actually be part of a team and there's coaching, things like that involved in it? Yeah, I guess so. I suppose that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good reason for being involved in a club. Why are you involved in Knox Church's club, soccer club? I don't know, they're, they're kind of local, I suppose. I, that's the only reason I can really think of. But don't they really kind of hold fast to this? You know, soccer's an opportunity to do community. Oh, really? Do they? Okay, I didn't know about that. Anyway, hopefully you get the picture, you know. If you're part of Reformed Church and you're part of this church, hopefully you have some kind of inkling to find out a little bit more about, okay, what does it actually mean to be Reformed? Because if I'm coming to this church, that's what I'm actually saying. So as I mentioned, better turn it on. Become a little bit interested in theology is a good thing. And um, so today, hopefully, you'll get a little bit of a snapshot on what that actually means. So, like all good Reformed church um, sermons, it has three points. Um, so I'm going to take you through, okay, what is it? And when we're talking about being Reformed, what is it? What does it look like? And what do I do with it? Remember last week, Joel's sermon, we talked about this kind of image gives you a good idea of what it actually means to be a uh, part of reform because at the very top is um, where we kind of sit. But in the meantime, the Catholic, is not the Roman Catholic, but the Catholic, which is a worldwide church, uh, we're part of that. We're also part of the Protestant, what we call the Protestant churches, and that's all non-Roman Catholic and Orthodox. And so we're part of many, many denominations. And as we go up to the top, there's a number of denominations, and we're part of that who call ourselves Reformed. So what is it? And I'm going to take you a little bit of a journey through church history, so bear with me, but this is really interesting, okay? So over the last 500 years, these are the things that have happened. So initially in the early 1500s, up until that time, so that's a really long time, the church had developed and grown and it come to a point where they were proclaiming the fact that there was, God is three in one, so in the Trinity, Jesus Christ was both God and man, Jesus dies to pay our sins and the Bible is the inspired word of God and Christ will return. But as well as that, there was a whole heap of other things that had been developed over time that were being um, put onto the people of the church that day. And I'm just going to take you through a little bit of a video. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, 
thought that being good was what it was all about. He was tortured by the possibility that if he didn't confess every single one of his sins right away, he would forget one and be condemned for it. Until one day, he sat down and read Paul's email to the church in Rome. Paul said that we are all saved by grace. So, all that is required is grace alone, thought Luther. If the church is wrong on this major point, where else could it be wrong? Luther drafted his 95 Theses. At the time, church doors were used as billboards for many announcements, and so the logical place for Luther to place his theses was right next to that poster announcing the Beyonce concert on Wednesday night. Oh, wait. Never mind. Anyway, so Luther nailed those proclamations up on the door that October day in 1517. Martin Luther kick-started the reformation of the Catholic Church that day, along with Tyndale, Servetus, Huss, Calvin, and Katharina Zell. So Luther was not alone. Okay, so as the video indicated, Martin Luther, back in the 15, early 1500s, was an Augustine monk. And he was just tearing himself inside out because he just couldn't realise how salvation could come to him. No matter what he did, no matter how good he was, no matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he did for other people, he just couldn't come to the point of satisfaction and knowing that he'd been saved and God loved him. And this just really tore him apart. And it wasn't through the intervention of God eventually coming into his life to indicate to him, hey... These are the things you need to understand and it's staring you right in the face in my word. So particularly from Romans, Romans chapter 1 verse 17 where it says, For the, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the, righteousness will live, the righteous will live by faith. And so he finally realised this. And then if we go back to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, in particular, verse 8, these things that really rang true to him and the penny kind of dropped for him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not the results of works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God spared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only did he come to that realisation, but he also realised that the church was doing a lot of bad things. They were imposing on people the, um, um, what they called indulgences in those days. So people had to buy their way to salvation and it was a really corrupt system. And so Martin Luther comes along, he has this realisation and recognizing that you know what the church is doing he's not happy about that and so as the video indicated he puts on the door of the Wittenberg church 95 theses which proclaims effectively you guys are doing bad things because um, salvation is not granted by the things that you do but it's by grace and it's through faith and also you know you're actually destroying the people financially and mentally by imposing these things on them effectively saying our salvation eternal life is not earned by good deeds but it's a free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus's saving work well you can imagine the ruckus this caused it caused a huge split in the church and needless to say 
they weren't happy. All right, the people, the church, the church leaders of that day were not impressed with what he was doing. In fact, um, if they had had Donald Trump in their church in those days, he would have been saying to Martin Luther, you're fired. So effectively, the reformers break away from the church as we knew it in those days. And so then we had the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches and then the Church of the Reformation. So lots of um, people were involved in that. Lots of reformers, lots of theologians. And we actually celebrate 500 years of the Reformation at the end of this month, 31st of October. So that's a big deal, like 500 years. And really, when you boil it down, if God hadn't intervened, hadn't kind of used Martin Luther, used the other reformers, imagine where our church would be today. Okay, so it's really, really significant that we understand what the Reformation did for us. So the reformers, and thanks to the reformers, who then gave us a kind of foundation for our thinking and we're going to touch on that in the years, to, not the years, in the weeks to come. So, you know, the core preachers will kind of lead you through that in the next few weeks. But effectively, these guys came up with the proclamations around the four solas, which are the four alones. So, um, these are the most important things and the foundation of our faith in that we believe that scripture alone is the only authority that grace alone is the only basis for our salvation, that faith alone is the means by which we come to our salvation and Christ alone is the one who's done it for us. Really significant. So if there's anything you take away from today's talk is an understanding of that. But that's also what the whole Protestant church believes. And thanks to the reformers who gave us that and a comprehensive state for a statement for a Protestant faith. Going on from there, what does it look like? What does Reformed theology look like? So continuing on from that, there were significant theologians beyond the time of the Reformation and there was one significant theologian amongst that crowd um, who um, made a difference about um, the reformers then broke away from the Lutheran Church as, were, as it was known in those days and is still known today. And the reformed theologians, including Joel Cat, John, John Calvin, kind of um, started to build on what um, the reformed thinking was in those days. What also happened was that there was a movement of others who, um, but, um, in Europe but also in England and then we started to get some of the denominations that we know today. So as I mentioned, John Calvin was significant in all of that. He was um, a guy then who gave us the four, five points of Calvinism. Um, and this is starting to get a bit heavy. And, um, so, but it is important to know. So he talked about the total depravity of man, unconditional election, particularly a redemption or limited atonement. Holy Spirit cannot be resisted and perseverance of the saints. I'm not going to go into detail all of these, but please start to kind of get interested, if you haven't already, in what this all actually means. But the most significant thing out of all of that was total depravity. And it talks about man's inability to actually work out his own salvation. 
but it also then conversely talks about the sovereignty of God and that's really important. And, and Calvin was big on the fact that we cannot get past the fact that God is in all, over all and um, amongst his people. So what does that mean? God is sovereign over the universe. He's our ruler. He's the maker. He's the creator. God is sovereign over his global mission. He's interested in growing his church, and, but he's in charge of all of that. God is also sovereign in all of our, the things that are happening to us, our lives, everything that happens in our lives. And above all else, he's sovereign over our salvation. And this was becoming quite a distinct thing in the church in those days because there was people th thinking about, well, how does man come into this? How does he kind of become a part of all of this? But Calvin was very, very, um, and his followers were very much on about that God is sovereign and God is the only one. So a few texts that kind of illustrate that, Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. 1 Chronicles 21, 29 verse 3, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, In him we were all chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. A friend thinks allowing men free will and yet still achieving his purposes shows a greater view of God's sovereignty. What are your thoughts on this? Let me define the term first, and then, and then I'll respond. I, I'm going to assume that by free will he means something really controversial, not something obvious. Um, what I'm going to assume the question means is real, ultimate self-determination. Because that's the only kind of free will that's controversial. Uh, I think most lay people, when they talk about free will, just mean, I really choose. And, of course, you do, and so fine, you have free will. We all do. Uh, but, but those who are theologically writing about this and thinking about what they mean is that I, John Piper, am able ultimately and decisively to determine my own will and God cannot and does not when I choose that he won't. So I have that kind of autonomy in the universe. I don't think that exists anywhere. I can't, there's not one verse in the Bible that says we have such a thing. And the people, they, you know, they start grasping for verses about, well, whosoever will, let him come. Well, of course, whosoever will, let him come. But why does one will and not another is the question. So is God more glorious to somehow ordain that human beings have autonomy, self-determination ultimately, so that he uh, cannot, once he's made that decree, he cannot guide what they do without intruding upon their moral uh, capacities and turning them into robots. Um, and they say, God doing that and still pulling off his ultimate purposes is more glorious. And I would say they've just created a universe that doesn't exist in their head and they're pronouncing on it. 
I don't, I don't create universes that don't exist. I, I, don't, I don't find it helpful to imagine a universe that doesn't exist and then say it's a more glorious one than this one because I'm, I'm given a universe. And then I'm given the creator's interpretation of the universe right here. And what this says is that universe doesn't exist. So you can speculate about it all you want, but it doesn't. Now, I'm going to go further than that and say the universe in which God gave all people uh, that kind of autonomy and self-determination, that universe um, isn't superior because... God would have made it if it were superior. And if you say, I mean, but you're going in a circle here, aren't you? Saying it doesn't exist, and therefore you don't believe it, and saying if it were better, it would exist. No, because I'm just basing my understanding of this universe on this book. This book says we don't have that kind of autonomy. Okay, so John Piper, um, he comes up a few times. He's a bit of a hero of mine. I really like him, the way he expresses Reformed theology, but also a lot about being a Christian. So um, if you're wondering where to go, um, go to him, have a look at the things he's... But he's just proclaiming what John Calvin was on about at the very start. Man's inability to work out his own salvation and that it was God alone. But unfortunately, there was a lot of um, conflict and a lot of disagreement at the time of the reformers. And so there was a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius and his followers, and they disagreed with a lot of the stuff that Calvin said. And so for them, the contrast was that out of the five points of Calvinism, they had five points of Arminianism, and probably the most significant one was this one where they conflicted with the idea that it was God alone and God's sovereignty and man's depravity that kind of gave that difference. They, start, they firmly believed that um, man had a part to play and that his free will and his ability gave that ability to, um, in conjunction with what God was doing um, for salvation. And so... Um, they're the kind of things that started to separate the church in those days. And so significantly, Calvinism was about God's sovereignty being unconditional and unlimited and absolute. And the other guy's Arminianism was that he limits his control in order to work out with man's freedom and response. And look, this is not easy to kind of come into um, some understanding. It's taken me a long, long time. And in fact... Um, it's, it's still difficult for me to this day to kind of understand all of that because there's a lot of text that backs up both sides. But all in all, I've come to a point where I firmly believe what Joel and Calvin was on about and that we just don't have the ability in our, in our state to be able to work out our own salvation. So consequently... This day, up right up until now, you have this distinct kind of differentiation in the church today. Those who will follow the works of John Calvin, 
who are um, espoused to Calvinism and those who um, are more on the following of uh, Arminianism. And so you can see some of the churches that are involved in there. And our church is firmly planted in the Calvinism camp. Um, over the years, I've been asked a number of times um, when I've talked about I belong to the Reformed Church, people say, mm, what does that mean? And what are you Reformed from? <laughs> I sound like a prisoner of some sort that's come out of rehab. And so people do not have a clear understanding, and understandably so, they come, it's hard for them to understand what it means to be a Christian, let alone what are all the different denominations. And so it's difficult, as I said at the start, difficult if you don't really come to a, an understanding because you actually want to or uh, feel compelled to, to actually explain where you come from. You might think, well, big deal. What's, I don't need to. I just need to tell people that I'm actually a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. But, you know, if people ask, what do you belong? Why do you belong to that particular church? Some of these things are worthwhile knowing. So there's other Reformed distinctives. It's not just those five points of Calvinism. So our church has also, over the years, developed ways in which we understand life and, and, the, and there's lots of other things and I won't go into detail about these. We also have an understanding which is articulated through many creeds and many confessions. And one of those main ones is Heidelberg Catechism and that's split up into a number of Lord's Day. There's 52 Lord's Days and that was used primarily um, to educate the, um, the church community about what it meant to follow, um, be a Christian but also in the Reformed tradition. And Lord's Day 1 is significant in that um, it's all the Lord's Days are a series of questions and answers. And it, if you read that, what is your only comfort in life and death? And I'll let you read that itself. But it's a really, really cool way to summarise what it means to be a Christian and a follower of God. And um, so if you get a chance, have a look at that. It's an interesting kind of read. It's pretty heavy in parts, but it also starts to make clear what are the kind of distinctives about being part of the Reformed Church. So what do I do with all of that? I think um, in the first instance, as I mentioned before, become familiar with the principles of the Christian faith. So remember the ones that I put up there before, the four alones, and there's been an extra one added to that, which is very much then intrinsic with the way we believe, um, or what we believe in the Reformed Church, and that's um, to God be the glory. So glory alone in God. I think also use Reformed theology to better understand the nature of God. You know, this is not just for something that's cool to understand or that you kind of build your intellect, but through the process of trying to understand what it means to be Reformed, it's an opportunity actually to understand God more and to understand the nature of God and what it means to be a Christian. And you might love thinking about God more than you love God or arguing for God more than you love God, or defending God more than you love God, or writing about God more than you love God, or preaching more than you love God, or evangelizing more than you love God. Reformed people 
tend to be thoughtful. That is, they come to the Bible and they uh, want to use their minds to make sense of it. And, and the best want to make sense of all of it, not pick and choose and say, I don't like that verse. That sounds like an Arminian verse. We'll put that over here. Well, no, no. You fix your brain. You don't fix the Bible. So um, being that kind of person that we're, we're prone to, to, to systematize and fit things together, um, those kinds of people, me, are therefore wired dangerously to begin to idolize the system, idolize the and I don't want to go here too much because I think the whiplash starts to swing the other direction. And so minimize system and minimize thinking and minimize doctrine that we start losing a foothold in, in the Bible. So that would be a, a big caution that we be intellectually and emotionally more engaged with the person of Christ, the person of God, the Trinity, than we are with thinking about him. And they are inextricably woven. But, but the reason you're reading the Bible and the reason you're framing thoughts about God from the Bible is to make your way through those thoughts to the real person. The, the, the danger of those who do the other thing, namely all that intellectual stuff, no, 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 doctrine, no, intellect, no, study, no, experience, yes, is that they wind up worshiping a God of their own imagination. It feels so right, it feels so free, and feels so humble because they're not getting involved in all those debates. But it isn't. It's, it's, it's losing their grip on reality. So um, that's why you need people like him. He articulates it that much better. You know, um, it can be a danger that you get so wound up in the theology and wound up in what it means to be, you know, a reformed person or any kind of denomination that you kind of start to lose sight of what God's really on about. But conversely, too, you can actually start to say, well, I don't really want to be involved in here. I'm not really interested, and I don't think it's all that important. And that can be a danger as well. Uh, one of the things I've understood in growing up in the church, that there's kind of things exactly like that. I've experienced both of those sides where, you know, you get kind of caught up sometimes in the nuances of what it means to be in a reformed church and it kind of drives you nuts sometimes and um, you know what people say and what they demand and what things need to be done particularly in the way the churches are run um, that can be kind of sometimes a bit of a distraction and people get really caught up in all those and there's lots of arguments lots of talk and that can be a dangerous thing as John was saying there too but also, if you don't have any care for any of that and you just kind of just think, well, you know, I'm a Christian and so, you know, whatever comes, I'll take, and that can be really dangerous as well. I'm a fan of John Mellencamp, um, have been for a long time, and one of the lines in one of his songs is, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's a good kind of summary, you know. If you don't actually have your foot firmly in some camp, then you're just going to be tossed and turned by everything. And I think that's a really good thing to, to kind of continue to believe. Have a look at this video. Actually, a lot of my mindset changed a few years ago when some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, oddly enough. They, uh, 
they started talking theology. We started uh, getting in these different discussions. I started pointing different verses out to them. And then ultimately at the end of it, I said, okay, you guys believe that Michael the Archangel is the same person as Jesus Christ himself. I go, but there is no way on earth you can look me in the eyes right now and tell me that you actually came before God one day and said, God, show me the truth. And then you read the Bible for yourself. And at the end of it, you came to the conclusion that, oh, I get it. Jesus and Michael the Archangel are the same person. <laughs> There's no way you can tell me that. Someone fed that to you because you would never get that from reading the Bible. And so I just encourage them. I go, look, I, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I don't want to feed you something else. I'm just encouraging you. Would you just get alone with the Word of God, pray to God and say, God, show me the truth and then read it and see what conclusions you would come to. And they, they walked away. It was actually a really good discussion because they walked away and going, you know what? I think I do need to do that. I think I will do that. And I don't know if they ever did, but after they left, I, I started thinking to myself, was I really fair to them? I mean, did I really do that? Did I really one day say, I really want to know the truth? So I, I sat down with the Word of God and began to study and came to these conclusions. Um, honestly, that's not how it happened for me. And a lot of things were fed to me as well. And so I've been on this journey of just thinking to myself, okay, if I were on an island and I just read this book over and over again, and let's say this is the only, this is the only influence I had, and had anyone preaching to me, I had no theology books, I was just on this island reading this thing over and over, what would I believe just from my readings and studies of this book? Would I come up with church the way we do it in America? Probably not. And I went through this journey of just trying to figure out my whole belief system and thinking through how much of it was fed to me and how much of it really came from the Bible itself. Think about it. If, if all you had was the Bible, would you come to the conclusion after reading this that to become a Christian you would pray a prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart? And I know I am totally stepping on some toes right now. I'm just asking, is that really what you would find in here? Or if you only had the Bible, would you come out thinking, you know, I need to repent and be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, what would you believe if it were just the Bible? And again, I am not saying that we shouldn't listen to people because there are some amazing teachers in our world and God's gifted some people to be teachers. I'm just saying that biblically we're taught that we should test everything we hear and see if it's really in this book. How true is that? Um, again, he articulates it really well. I think if we didn't have anything else, we just had the Bible, that'd be okay. That'd be fine. And he does point to the fact that it's, it, it's great to have other people you know, talking about it and you read, read other people. But at the end of the day, you need to read the Bible because that's the only reference. So don't take it from me. Don't take it from anyone else. Get to know the Bible. Get to understand what it really means to be a child of God and read it and know it and be able to actually explain it to other people as well. And then just lastly, fully appreciate God's sovereignty. Um, this is very much at the heart of Reformed theology, as we mentioned already. But what that actually means, that it, 
God should permeate into every aspect of your life and I hope it does and continue to work on that. I need it, you need it, we all need it. So just have a look at these two clips just in ending. When you, when you know a truth at some level, say the sovereignty of God, which is what the Calvinist is really about, uh, this poem, um, when you know it at some level and you want to know it and you want to know him at another level, one of the ways is to try to say it well or to say it creatively or to say it imaginatively, to say it metaphorically, to say it compellingly. And the effort to say becomes a way to see. That's just the way it works for me. And so if people want to know, why would you write this? I say, because I want to see him. I want to know him in my life better. I want to know how God's sovereignty, my being a so-called Calvinist, relates to reading my Bible, relates to praying, relates to loving my children and being down on the floor and playing with my grandkids. I want to know how it relates to my wife and how we deal with conflict. I want to know how it relates to my daily work and my experience of evangelism on the street as I talk try to talk to a stranger about Christ. I want to know how it relates to disease and sickness and getting old and eventually dying. And so that's the way the poem works. I just, I wanted to think hard about what does it really mean for me to love the sovereignty of God, lean on the sovereignty of God, take my, my life and my joy from the sovereignty of God in all the practical areas of life. And for me, Poetry is a way, not just of saying it for others to read, but, but saying it so that I myself can know the experience better, know him better. See him on his knees, hear his constant pleas, heart of every aim, hallowed be your name. See him in the word, helpless, cool, unstirred, heaping on the pyre, heed until the fire. See him with his books, tree beside the brooks, drinking at the root till the branch bear fruit. See him with his pen, written line, and then better thought preferred, deep from in the word. See him in the square, kept from subtle snare, Unrelenting sleuth on the scent of truth. See him on the street, seeking to entreat, meek and treasuring. Do you know my king? See him in dispute, firm and resolute, driven by the fame of his father's name. See him at his trade. Done. The plan is made. 
Men will have his skills if the father wills. See him at his meal, praying now to feel thanks and be it grace, God in every taste. See him with his child. Has he ever smiled such a smile before, playing on the floor? See him with his wife, parable for life. In this sacred scene, she is heaven's queen. See him stray, he groans. One is true, he owns. What is left to me? Fallibility. See him in lament. Should I now repent? Yes, and then proclaim, all is for my fame. See him worshiping, watch the sinner sing, spared the burning flood only by the blood. See him on the shore, whence this ocean store? From your God above, thimbleful of love. See him now asleep. Watch the helpless reap. But no credit take, just as when awake. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper. So just in closing, may you, um, may you be inspired that theology is not a difficult thing necessary and certainly not a bad thing. Um, so just see it as a means and a way by which you can understand God more. And in the context of being part of a Reformed Church, See Reformed Theology again as a vehicle by which you can start to understand God more, more acutely and understand his sovereignty. So as that clip kind of showed how important it is to be um, aware of God's sovereignty in every aspect of your life, wherever you go. Thanks, let's pray. Father God, we thank you.